So, over the last number of weeks, I've spoken to you last week in particular about the ministry of deacons, remember? The ministry of deacons. But in that ministry, I demonstrated to you that biblically, there is not one example of a saint, a believer, a son of God, who was willfully or who has been given grace of God to do nothing. There's no grace to do nothing. The grace of God is always to do and to be. All right, so, there's, so there is no example of someone who has come into the redemptive nature of God, the redemptive power of God to be saved just to do nothing or to be nothing. So all of us, therefore, has been saved with the intent of adding value to what God is doing. Amen? I've been wrestling this week, and I still am, and sometimes maybe the rest of this week, if time permits, I will continue to wrestle with the thought, what does it mean to serve God? You see, coming here this morning is not serving God. Coming here this morning, in a way, is to worship God, but the bulk of the benefit is for you, not for God. Listening to the scriptures, being taught, it's not for God, it's for you. So what does my service to God look like? What do I do for God that adds value to God's program and God's agenda? That's a an question you have to answer to yourself. What does my service to God look like? What is it that I do that would hinder God's purpose from advancing if I don't do it? You need to wrestle with that question. Because I told you last week, also maybe the week before, that in the Old Covenant, people had to bring sacrifices to the temple. And this, the sacrifice they brought resembled their service to God. It resembled this, their appreciation of God. It resembled how they sought to honor God with their worship, etc. Beyond that, they had duties to perform. In fact, God even told them when they were not allowed to work. Do you know that scripture is clear about the observing of Sabbath? So we need to rethink this whole idea of what does it mean to serve God. I would like to hear your feedback on that in the weeks that's coming. What has the Lord revealed to you about what it means to Him when you serve Him in that? So... When it comes to the New Testament, we've said this before, there are basically only two offices in the New Testament church, that of elders and that of deacons. You say, hang on, what about the fivefold ministry? Well, there are also elders. The distinction is that there are elders given to a local congregation, and then there are elders given to the body of Christ. 
In other words, some serve a particular group of people, a, a, an assembly, like a local assembly, and some are given to the body of Christ, which means the church at large. It can be in a particular city, a region, a nation, certain nations that God has given to these individuals to serve. And so the distinction we make, therefore, is local and translocal elders. Something else I have mentioned to you, these individuals listed in Ephesians 4.11, apostles and prophets and teachers and shepherds or pastors and evangelists, there is no record in Scripture as to who these people ought to be. In other words, what are the characteristics or the character references that God is looking for? It's not in this book. And the reason for that is, my belief, is that these individuals first served as elders before they became apostles and prophets and teachers, pastors and evangelists. If they didn't come through that, the possibility is that they did not meet the qualifications of character to come into that ministry. If they skipped that, they went straight from being a believer into the fivefold. They, nothing was done to vet their character to bring them into that ministry. I've seen many of them in ministry. And they are, they are a loose cannon on deck. They have firing power but no direction, because they've not been processed in the house of God. So God, by his wisdom, determined that there would be no qualifications set out for the fivefold, but in great detail, give qualifications for elders and deacons. And when it comes to the qualifications for, for elders and deacons, the, the, when it comes to the character, it's exactly the same. There are only two things that differ between in the list in Timothy and Titus in character qualifications for elders and deacons is that deacons are not required to do two things, rule the house of God and teach the word. It's two things they don't have to do. But in terms of character, it's the exact same thing. So you can see that God has a particular set of qualities and characteristics that he's looking for, for those that would serve in his house. He set them out in Scripture. And then as we come through the process of growing up through these things, God can eventually take you and not just give you to a local assembly, but give you to the body. You see, there are people ministering in the body of Christ that have no address of a local church that they're a part of. I'm afraid of those people. Because there's nowhere where they make themselves accountable. No one can speak into their life. They are basically running on their gift. And there's no one that keeps their character in check. So, this is not how ministry ought to function. Bless the Lord. So this morning I want to talk about the aspect of elders. Amen? Alrighty. So in, 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 with regards to elders, there are two Greek words that I want to bring to your attention. The first one is the word presbyteros. 
presbyteros, when we look at this word, is rendered as elder. So you have a Greek word, presbyteros. This word is rendered as elder in the scriptures. Then there is a second word. This word is episkopos. I know these words sound difficult and strange when you pronounce them uh, because these are Greek words. Most of you only know the Greek that has a fish and ship shop. But these are Greek words. You know, the scriptures were, trans were written initially in Hebrew. Even the New Testament, the, when it comes to the, the Gospels, was first written in Hebrew, then translated into Greek, and from there into English and many other languages. And if you understand languages, you know that certain languages don't have certain words to express certain other words in other languages. Like I said to you last week, the difference between translation and transliteration. Transliteration is when you make up a word in your language that doesn't exist when you translate it out of another language. Okay? So, with regards to presbyteros, when you translate that word, it becomes the word elder in the Old Testament concept. And the word bishop, rather the word episkopos, becomes the word bishop. Now, I know that for some time in the church, there's been the argument as to whether we should acknowledge bishops. Now, you have to go back to 200 AD. Around 200 AD is when the word or the office or the title of bishop took on a different meaning. Around until that time, it still meant that a person was an elder in a local congregation, but around that time, they began to assume the office of responsibility for a number of congregations. As you see that today, in some evangelical churches or some denominations, the bishop is the person that oversees a diocese. In other words, a group of congregations that is accountable to this person. But in its original intent, it was never meant to say that. So I want to speak of it in the context of its original meaning and not what it became later. Are you with me? Okay. So firstly then, when we talk about elder, it emphasizes the person's maturity. Now, you should know by now, age is no guarantee of maturity. Okay, the Bible talks about an old fool. So growing old does not mean you grow up. There are two different things. You can grow up before you grow old. Okay? They don't run parallel. Okay. So when it talks about maturity, it does not necessarily speak of age, but it speaks of the maturity of the person spiritually and emotionally, able to fulfill a task of this magnitude that is said before the person. Now, when you look at biblical terms, 30 was around an age where ministry was conducted in, in, in the temple. Even Jesus waited until he was 30 
Joseph became the head of Pharaoh's Egypt when he was 30. You can go on and find lists. David came to the throne when he was 30. You can go on and find how ministries came to that realization around that time. So maybe there's some indication that when you reach the age of 30, you should have conquered these things in your soul and become to some kind of maturity as a person. Okay? The term bishop, then, speaks of the word overseer. Now, the word bishop speaks of function, while the word elder speaks of maturity and dignity of the office. Okay, so bishop then refers to what the person do. Elder refers to who the person is. So when Paul or the apostles write, they use the words interchangeably. When they want to talk about the person's work, they use the word bishop. When they want to use the person's office, they use the word elder. Okay? In other words, the function of the ministry is defined more clearly by the word bishop, whereas the office is defined more clearly by the word elder. Are you with me so far? Okay. I need to pray for my tablet today. Maybe I need to give it one. What we also have to learn about these words is that these words are borrowed. Are you with me? They are borrowed because in the New Testament church, these offices did not exist. So they were borrowed from what existed at the time. Do you know that the word apostle, for example, existed long before the church? Jesus borrowed the word when he designated 12 to be apostles. So it's important to understand how these words were taken to mean new things. So they certainly imply what they meant in its original meaning plus what was added to it in the new environment in which it was used. Are you with me so far? Are you sure? Because you're giving me that stare of a deer looking in the headlamps of an oncoming vehicle. Okay. So let's look for a moment at the title Elder. Because this is the one used most frequently by the apostles, and which is the most popular of these two titles. And it's obtained its official function amongst the Jews long before the adoption into the church. Because you will remember, for example, if you go back to the tabernacle, the Lord told Moses to take 70 of the elders that was with him and to bring them to the tabernacle. And there the Lord will take off his spirit that is upon Moses and put it upon the 70. It seems to me that even when they were in Egypt as slaves in Pharaoh's economy, that they even had elders there. Because remember, when they went into Egypt, they went in as a family, a patriarchal family, ones who, who were governed. And if you study 
how families functioned in, its, in the ancient time, you will see that even the word elder was used for the father of a family, not just a household, not a small family, but a, in a patriarchal sense where they were a father who had sons who became fathers in their own households. And so the, the, the older father was called an elder in terms of maturity and the ability to share counsel and wisdom with the younger fathers. So it was used in that context even before the tabernacle was established, even before the temple was built, the idea it really existed, and it was borrowed and carried into these aspects of ministry because culturally the people already understood what it meant. Okay? So by the time Jesus started his ministry, the word elder has taken on a different meaning already. Because by now, it meant those who governed the religious system, the religious world. Like, for example, the Sanhedrin, the elders that were sitting on that. Uh, there, in order to sit on the Sanhedrin, you had to be 40 years of age at least. And uh, an older man whose children already had children. Okay. So, um, but it had a different meaning by that time. It was not just a patriarchal head of a family, but it was now also, um, in a religious system, elders who was governing the temple. So when it was adopted into the Christian church, it brought with it at least the idea of those who brought leadership or governance and some element of authority in their leadership into the house because this is how they were viewed before they were brought into the house of God in that context. Remember, these elders were not there under Jesus' ministry on earth. They were the 12 apostles and they were the disciples. And then beyond Pentecost, when the church became established, it was the apostles who, through their remembrance of the culture, which was Judaism, how it functioned, they then, when they had a problem with a Hebraic uh, woman uh, who was not served the tables, they remembered how service was done in the temple and they instituted the office of the deacon. They also remembered culturally how societally they were governed, and they brought the elder into the congregation. So they were governed to a large extent by their history as Jewish people in how they functioned as God's people. And so this new entity called the church, therefore, they brought into it what they had in the past, but of course they didn't have the Lord Jesus Christ. So they brought into it those elements. Amen? Are you with me? The term episkopos, what I mentioned earlier, talking about a bishop, this was really amongst the Greeks. This had no religious context. An episkopos was a person who was appointed as a magistrate and this person was sent to rule on behalf of Athens, the capital of, of Greece. 
to over a, a city that they have annexed. Maybe during a war, they've annexed the city. In other words, they conquered the city, and now they're colonizing it, and they're sending an episcopos, somebody to rule over that city on their behalf. And this person would then govern the city and institute the cultures and the values of Greece in that environment so that he would then rule this place on behalf of Athens and institute the laws, the principles, the cultures, the values of Athens in that place. So when the Apostle Paul then used the word episcopus in his writings, he was using it when he wrote letters predominantly to the churches that had no Hebraic roots. They didn't come from Judaism. These were people that worshipped idols. These were people who were completely outside of the commonwealth of Israel. They knew nothing about elders, so he didn't use the word elder because it meant nothing to them. He used the word episcopos because they knew what that was. It was someone governing a city like a mayor would govern a city today. He borrowed that word and brought it into the church so that people would understand what he's talking about. He's talking about a governor in the house of God, somebody who rules over God's people on behalf of God and establishes the culture and the values of God amongst the people. Can you understand why these two words were used? Okay. It means something else today, but in the context that it was written, that is to some extent what it means. In the Septuagint, what is the Septuagint? It's the Greek writings of the first five books of the Bible, also known as the Pentateuch in the English language. The Septuagint is where the first five books of the Bible, which was written in Hebrew, is now written in Greek, so that the people of the day who was only able to read Greek was able to read the first five books of the Bible. So in the Septuagint, people like Josiah and Nehemiah use the context of the elder when they speak of them as overseeing the work of the rebuilding of the temple. In other words, part of the work of these individuals and where the word overseer comes from is to oversee the work of the restoration of the temple and the work of the, of the priest in the temple. So the idea of overseeing, like we would use the word in English today, someone is a manager. You know that idea, the person manages a situation or a company or a business, they manage the people, they manage the systems, they make sure that the objectives are kept on track. So this word was also used in the idea of, of um, making sure that the work get done. Part of their work was to make sure the right person is doing the right job at the right time. It sounds just like a manager, isn't it? So this is basically how they function. They were directing the labors of the people. So it indicated both to the Jew and to the Greek that these persons were 
styled and they were appointed to do four things primarily. Firstly, to superintend the affairs of the church. Superintend, that's a word that perhaps you have heard in church before. In some denominations, they call an, a person that others would call a bishop, which oversees certain number of congregations. They will call the person a superintendent. They oversee a number of congregations in a certain area. So you've seen the word there. So firstly, the work of the person is to superintend the affairs of the church. And secondly, is to direct the activities of the members of the church. Direct the activities of the member. Just like you would have someone directing an orchestra. The person is directing every musician, making sure everyone plays their instrument at an appointed time, at the right note, the right timing, everything is how the person directs that situation. Thirdly, was to see that everything was done that should be done. That it was all done timeously and properly. And fourthly, that it was done by the right person at the right time and in the right way. So here's the idea that they carried when they um, looked at the idea of an overseer. It was someone who had that responsibility to oversee the work. When it comes to the work of elders, and I'm not going to give you all of these scriptures, I'm going to quote them to you so that you can, those of you who make notes can make the notes. The first responsibility of an elder is to shepherd. When we think of a shepherd, and this is something that has become in the church to some extent, we say that the work of a shepherd is to feed the flock. But the, it's not the proper understanding because in the context that it was written, shepherds never fed their flock. In the Middle East, a shepherd does not cut grass and bring it to the sheep to eat. The shepherd lead the sheep to the pasture, and the sheep eat for himself. So the primary work of, a, of an elder, therefore, is not to feed the sheep, but to lead the sheep to pastures where they can feed on themselves for themselves. Can you see that? That is why for many churches, the most important thing for the pastor to do is to preach on a Sunday morning, believing that they are feeding the sheep. But the proper thing is to show the sheep where the pasture is. To show them how to feed, where to feed, what to feed so that they're able to feed the whole week long because they have a relationship with God that has been cultivated in the house of God. So when I use the term shepherd, not in the context of feeding the sheep, that's why you can see in Psalm 23, he leadeth me to green pastures. He leadeth me to still waters. Because the shepherd has a relationship with the flock he knows each one by name, and the shepherd is able to call them. That's why Jesus says, my sheep knows my voice. That was 
culturally, the people understood what he said. Because it, it takes a good shepherd for the sheep to know his voice. Which means he has a relationship with the sheep. They know his voice. Amongst the voices of all the other shepherds, they know his voice. You see? And then, therefore, they can follow him in what he's doing. So the first thing is to shepherd. The second thing I put down is to teach. Shepherd is to shepherd the flock. Secondly is to teach. Thirdly is to guard. Guard against what? False teachers primarily. The work of an elder is to guard the flock against false teachers. The Bible referred to false teachers as wolves in sheep's clothing. Then they have to oversee. My visual idea of oversee is you have to be at a place where you can see. See the lives of people. See how they function. See how they interact with God. How they interact with each other. Otherwise, you cannot oversee them. You must have a relationship with the people in order to oversee them, to manage them. Then it's to give counsel. Very important part of an elder's work is to give counsel. That's why it's so important for an elder to be a mature person. A person that have life skills and knowledge and a history with God. Some kind of track record. You know, so that they can bring to the person's life the wisdom of Scripture and the experience of life. That they can bring them in counsel. Another work of an elder is to handle disputes. When there are disputes in the house of God, you shouldn't become a part of it. You should be a part of the solution. There are times when I minister in places where there are pastors who don't speak with each other. I would be in the same city, and there'll be two pastors in enmity with each other, and I'll be preaching in both churches. And I purposely do not talk of the, of the one with the other. Because my work is to be a bridge builder. My work is to seek reconciliation between these people. Otherwise, I'm a part of the problem, not of the solution. Then, another work of elders is to pray for the sick. And to supervise and to distribute of money, distribution of money. The resources in the house of God. Now, I told you I was going to give you the scriptures. So let me give you the scriptures quickly. To shepherd is John 10, verse 12. To teach, I'll give you two scriptures. 1 Timothy 3, 2. 1 Timothy 5, 17. To God, Acts 20, 28 and 29. To oversee, 1 Peter 5, 3. You can also use Hebrews 13, 7. I'll use that in a different context later. To give counsel, Acts 21, 23. To handle disputes, Acts 15, 2. 
To pray for the sick, James 5.14. And to supervise and distribute money, Acts 11.30. I've given you some work that an elder is supposed to do. Now, in my experience, an elder may not do all of these things simultaneously, but they will do at least half of these things. Other elders may be able to do the other things. That's why through the multiplicity of eldership, there is the overlapping of skills, of knowledge, of experience that comes into the equation so that there is the covering of all of these things by a group of individuals because no one person can be everything to everybody. Let me move on and talk about something else, the qualifications of elders. I want to quote three passages of Scripture here. 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, Titus 1, 5 to 9, and 1 Peter 5, 2 to 3. In 1 Timothy 3, verse 1 onwards, it says, This is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop... He desired the good work. A bishop then must be blameless. Hold on for a moment. Paul is using the word bishop. He's writing to Timothy. Timothy's mother was Jewish. His father was Greek. Remember? And he's writing a letter to Timothy who is working amongst the Gentile peoples. Those who have no Judaic background... Therefore, using the term elder would be foreign to them in their context. He was using the word bishop in this context because they understand what it means. Amen? Are you with me? All right. A bishop then must be blameless, a husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, no greedy or faulty lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the house of God? That's an italics. Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. What was the condemnation of the devil? Presumptuousness and pride. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without. In other words, those who are outside of the church, in the world. Lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Second passage of scripture, Titus 1 from verse 5 onwards. For this cause I left thee, I left thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city I had appointed thee. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-walled, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, no given to faulty lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. 
in this passage, in Titus, Paul adds something that was not in Timothy. It's the last statement. The elder must also be able to, through sound doctrine, exhort, which means to encourage, but secondarily, to convince gainsayers. What is gainsayers? A gainsayer is a person who will take a portion of Scripture and twist it to say something that it's not intended to say. Therefore, an elder is a person who is knowledgeable of Scripture. They must be able to use Scripture to convince gainsayers and bring them into right standing with God and His Word. Let's go to 1 Peter 5, verse 2 onwards. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. Now, who's Peter writing to? Peter was called to the Jews. He's writing to Jewish believers who has come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's using less terminology to explain what needs to be done because of the heritage that they have in Judaism of the work of the elder. He doesn't have to defend it. He doesn't have to explain it in great detail. He can simply stipulate what needs to be done. Okay? So he says, feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. He's not using the word bishop, even though that's what he's saying, overseeing the work. Not by constraint, in other words, don't do it because somebody is forcing you to do it. But willingly. He's here, not for filthy lucre, in other words, not to get money out of it, but of a ready mind, you must be willing to do it. Neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. Adding another thing here that was not in Titus and not in Timothy. Examples to the flock. Because people need someone to emulate. All right. So, I think you will understand when I say I can't teach you on all of these qualities today of eldership. When I train elders, I do it over 12 months. 12 months school of eldership. We unpack these things one by one. I'm going to group these things together so that you can see what it is that we are looking for in these individuals. Firstly, when it comes to social qualifications, the person must not be pugnocious. Big English word, pugnocious. What does it mean to be pugnocious? I'm thinking of the pug dog, pugnocious. It means somebody who is quick to fight, quick to argue. A fly sits on their nose and they cut it off with a sword. They are short-tempered. That's not a good candidate for an elder. Somebody who is quick to pick a fight. Okay? Which means they have not yet ruled that area of their soul. Secondly, they must be hospitable. What does it mean to be Hospitable. You can visit some people and they won't give you a glass of water on a rainy day. That means they are inhospitable. 
hospitable person is somebody that when you arrive at their home, ask you if you have any needs. They don't know if you, when you had your last meal. I love this about Apostle Bill. A man of his 80 years of age would drive from Delhi to the airport to fetch me. And the first question he would ask me is, Now, Vincent, when is the last time you had a decent meal? Now, I know the answer to that question because I know where we're going. We're going to a restaurant called Cheesecake Factory. It's a cheesecake factory. I'm talking about that high, the cake, maybe that high. Real. You go to Mug and Bean, they don't come near these guys. And I would say, Brother Bill, you know how they serve you on the plane. He says, well, let's fix that. You see, Brother Bill is an apostle, and he, one of the qualifications is hospitality. How to be hospitable to people. How to determine their needs and offer to serve them according to their needs. You know, that's one of the qualifications of an elder. When you, someone comes to you for counseling, don't just counsel them. Ask them, when is the last time you had a meal? It's not good to counsel someone on an empty stomach. They can't hear your counsel. They can only hear their stomach growl. First, meet their physical needs. Then, seek to meet their spiritual needs. Hospitality is a fundamental thing to an elder. This means, of course, an elder's wife must be hospitable. Otherwise, the elder must do it himself. You know? Secondly, what are the aptitudes? The first aptitude is to be able to teach. To teach means what? To take something complex and make it simple to understand. So that any person, regardless of their education or regardless of their maturity, can understand what you are saying. Secondly, they must be able to exhort. To exhort someone means to encourage them. The Bible says you must encourage others with the same encouragement that you yourself have received. Which means that you must be vulnerable to receive encouragement from others so that you can give it to others. The ability to exhort. Also to refute, as I mentioned earlier, refute gainsayers. Somebody that take the scriptures and talk nonsense. Tell them that that's not what the Bible says. In fact, that's not what it's meant. Because Scripture must be interpreted in the context of Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. It's important that it must be interpreted in its holistic way. What are the experiential qualifications? The first thing is not a new convert. What is a new convert? A new convert is somebody who's just believed on the Lord. To me, a new convert is somebody who has not yet been discipled. I come across people that are in ministry that's not been discipled. I come in churches where elders have not been discipled. 
In fact, one of the first things I do when I take oversight of a congregation is to begin to disciple the elders if they've not been discipled. It's a long, tedious task to put a foundation under those who are supposed to lead. Sometimes I do it when I'm there in, this, in the country and the city. Sometimes I do it over Skype, and I do it for many, many hours sitting in my office, speak to them over Skype. They sit there with the material, they study, work with me. Sometimes I do it over the phone, whatever means I can find to do it. But I know they have to be discipled if they're going to serve in the house of God. Discipling someone in leadership is like operating on somebody without anesthesia. You know, pulling a tooth without, you know, first putting some anesthesia. Because the person is already doing the work, but they haven't been equipped to do the work. So you're doing the equipping at the same time as they're doing the work. It's a very difficult thing. Also, there's no specific age limit that the scriptures give for someone to be an elder. So it's not about age, it's about maturity. What are the motivational qualifications? First Timothy says you must be willing. There are some people that are able, but they are not willing. Some are willing, but they're not able. So you must be willing. Why do you have to be willing? Because this is hard work. Working with people is a tedious task. People can be rude. They can be ungrateful. They can be disrespectful. I can make a long list. I've been doing this work for a long time. And you have to understand why you do what you do. Your motivations have to be right. And so firstly, you have to be willing. I want to add something. You have to be willing to suffer. If you're not willing to suffer, this is not for you. Because Paul writes to Timothy, he says, suffer hardship like a good soldier. Which means you're going to battle. You're going to suffer some things. There's going to be some difficult things. You're going to deal with some difficult situations and difficult people. Therefore, you must firstly be willing to go through these emotional difficulties. Secondly, you must not be motivated by it for monetary gain. If the motivation is money, I can tell you, honey, it's not going to work. Many people that go without pay doing this work. Because you must understand who you're doing it for, what the motivation is, and that it's the calling to do the work. Money is, by the way, money is important, but it should never be the motivation. Not for the power which the office affords. You don't want to become an elder because you're power hungry. You think that if I have the power, everybody will look up to me. The question is, when they look up, what will they see? So this is fundamental things. Then domestic qualities, the last thing I want to minister 
talk about, about the characteristics is domestic qualifications. The husband of one wife. Some interpret this to say one wife at a time. Which means you dispose the one, you take another one, that's okay. I suppose we can, we, can, we, can, we can work with that and see how that works out in the end. But the important thing is you should not be a polygamist more than one wife at a time. Why? One of the qualities of a polygamist is a double-minded person. They don't know who to please and when to please who, when. In leadership, you have to be decisive. You have to be able to execute the things you believe, carry them through. So one of the qualifications is one wife. And then managing your own household well. Very important. All the aspects of your household must be managed well. Taking care of all of those things. Now that I've mentioned what the qualifications of eldership is, let's take a look for a moment at what are the responsibilities towards elders. Because we have responsibilities in what we have to become, what we have to be in order to function in that position. But according to Scripture, there's also a certain response the congregation have to function in towards elders. The first thing I want to mention is in Hebrews 13, 17. It says, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they that must give an account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. That last statement should catch your attention. That is unprofitable for you. Okay? So, oh, I'm going to assume that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, even though there's a big dispute about it. But let's assume he's the author. He says, obey them that have rule over you. So that's our response to an elder. And submit yourselves, of course, to the elder, for they watch your soul. And then it goes on to say, as they that must give an account, to who? To the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes when you are in prayer as an elder before the Lord, the Lord will interrupt your prayer and ask you, so then, how's John doing? Then you have to give him a report at that moment. Because you're the shepherd, you're supposed to know how John's doing. Now, whatever the shepherd tells the Lord at that time can either be profitable for you or unprofitable. That's why he says, you know, there's some things that can be unprofitable for you. Because the Lord holds the elder or the shepherd accountable for the flock. I was reading this week about Jacob when he was giving an account to Laban. He was saying to Laban, now some of your flock was stolen by day. And some were stolen by night, and some was destroyed by a wild animal. But let me tell you, for all of that, I've taken responsibility. And I have borne the cost thereof, which means I've replaced them out of my own stock. 
given them back to you. You have suffered no loss. All the losses are for my account. Because Jacob was a good shepherd. When Jesus prays in John 17, he gives an account to the Father. He says, of those you have given me, I have lost none. Because he is the good shepherd. He said, I have lost no one that you've given me. You know? So one of the responsibilities that we have towards elders is to obey them in their work so that we may mature and grow in the Lord. Secondly, in 1 Thessalonians 5.13, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. To esteem them. The word esteem is, comes out of the word estimate. What is your estimation of the person God has given you as an elder? To esteem means to ascertain the value of the person based on the person's life, the person's character, the person's ability to give you the things you need to become who you're supposed to be in God. Having made the estimation, you have to respond according to the estimation to esteem the person, or in other words, give the person some kind of value based on your determination. 1 Timothy 5.19 Against an elder receive not an accusation but before two or three witnesses. Another thing you don't do with an elder is somebody walks past you on the pavement and they make an accusation against an elder. The Bible says you cannot receive that accusation unless there are two or three witnesses bearing witness of the incident against an elder. And then what is the res correct response to do? How do you correct an elder? You don't point a finger at the person. In Judaism, when a son had to correct a father, the son had to ask the father questions. Like someone would interview a person. And the son would ask the father, Does the Torah say... A, B, and C. And the father has to respond. Yes. Ben. Ben means son. The Torah says A, B, and C. And the son has to lead the father in repentance by showing the father the scriptures. And the father has to respond to the scriptures in submission to the Lord. Not in pointing a finger. I know of somebody who is torn some pastor's jacket off his back trying to prove that he's right and the pastor is wrong. I also know that it didn't go very well with him. So there is a way in which we fix things. You know, as a people, your master, okay, we have to realize those are cultural flaws in our society. There's a proper way of solving things, and we have to learn the decorum of the house of God. Amen? And so the proper way is by asking a question. So we have to protect elders from unfounded charges. Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you, 
as you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. Three things. Remember your leaders. There are some people that have spoken the word of God over your life that has already gone on to be with the Lord. Remember them. They have labored in your life. There are some things in your life right now because of their labor. You remember that. Secondly, carefully observe the outcome of the lives of those who lead you. In other words, see how the things they teach you work for them. It's possible to teach the Word of God and not submit yourself to the same thing you're teaching. It says, when you see how the outcome is of what they teach in their own lives, it says then, imitate their faith. Simulate what they do, how they live, because you see the outcome of what they teach. 1 Timothy 5.17, the elders who, uh, who are good leaders should be considered worthy of ample honorarium, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain, and the worker is worthy of his wages. Elders who are good leaders should be considered worthy of an ample honorarium. What is the word honorarium? What's the first part of the word? Honor. In other words, there has to be honor in what you give. That's that's when it becomes an honorarium. Otherwise, it's just a rarium. There's no honor in it. I've received many of them in my lifetime, the rariums. I've ministered in many churches around the world, and I've received rariums, not honorariums. I've learned how to, to maintain my dignity in those times. I've even defended myself. I've said to the Lord one instance. I put the check down on the coffee table in my hotel room. I said to the Lord, you can read. Read those numbers. They don't bless me. Do they bless you? You know what happened? The next morning, my phone rang in my hotel room, and somebody came to the reception of the hotel to bring me a check. The check they brought me was more, I think, than what the church gave me. You see, God has ears. He's inclined the ear, his ears to the call of the righteous. He knows that I've gone there to do work for him, and his church didn't honor me. You see, if we work, the Bible says those who work hard in preaching and teaching. Do you know that it's hard work to preach and teach? Not standing here. This is the, the public part of it. The hard work is what happens in that office during the week. When I study, read, meditate, contemplate, pray, study, read, meditate, contemplate, go over it, over and over. Sometimes when I'm in my bed, I'm still meditating on the scriptures, seeking opportunity for the Lord to open up revelation in those scriptures. Amen. That's if you take the work serious. 
I can Google a sermon for you, and I can give you that. We can put it in the microwave and heat it up for you. You may not know the difference. The important thing is if you take the work serious in doing the work, firstly unto the Lord, and secondly unto the people, so that the work of God can be established. Amen? So it's hard work to preach and teach the word of the Lord because there's a lot of preparation that goes into it. Amen? I've been doing this work for a long time, longer than what some of you are alive. I still spend a lot of time in this. Saturdays, I spend my time in my office still, till noon, sometimes later. Saturday afternoons, I work on it again. Sunday mornings at 6, I'm up. At 6.30, 6.40, I'm back in the Word. Because I want to make sure when I minister the Word of the Lord to you that you get something of substance that can help you live the way God wants you to live. Amen? Then the Bible says, don't muzzle the ox. What does it mean to muzzle the ox? Do you know what that means? That treads out the corn, the grain. In the old days, they had a millstone. And there was a, a, um, a, a rafter or a beam of wood tied to the millstone. And they put an ox at the end. And then the ox walk in circles. And the stone then grinds the corn or whatever, barley, whatever they are grinding. But this is what they do. Because they don't want the ox to eat of whatever is on the threshing floor, they put a cover over his mouth, a piece of leather over his mouth, tie it behind his head, so now he can't eat. Congregations can do that to their leaders. They can muzzle the ox. Make sure that there's not enough left on the floor for him to eat. The bills are paid, but there's nothing for him. The Bible says don't do that because it's not good. So we have to, in our responses to God and to his purposes, we want to make sure that we honor the Lord in all of these things. Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13. Now we ask you, brothers, to give recognition to those who labor amongst you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you and to regard them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourself. So what do we have to do? We have to recognize them. We have to discern those that God has given to us to work with us. And then we are to Give recognition to those that labor amongst us. This week, Apostle John is going to be here. He's been laboring amongst us for 16 years. He's been coming into this country. I want to ask you something. I know it's in the middle of the month, and I know some of you have already given. I want to ask you to consider blessing him as a servant of God is coming into our midst. You can truly say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You have to recognize the grace of God in him as a person. 
comes, leaves his wife, leaves his family, gets on a plane. Up till now, he's not asked for one cent. Everything is done with his own money. Buys air ticket, comes here, arrives here. First thing we do for him is fetch him from the airport. Take him to the hotel, feed him, hopefully, a good meal. But until then, we haven't done anything for him. Because if he stayed home, he didn't need an air ticket. He didn't need a hotel. He didn't need to be fetched from the airport. We've done nothing for him up till that point. Amen? And why is he coming here? For our benefit. Not for him. He's come to do the work of the Lord amongst us. Amen? Our lives will be enriched. We are going to have knowledge we didn't have before. We will have revelation we didn't have before. We're going to be able to understand the purposes of God better than what we did before. So our lives will be changed. How do you respond when your life is changed? You take something of what you have in your hand and you respond with it to show honor to the person that brought to you that which God is giving you. Amen? I want to encourage you in that so that you may respect him in what he's doing. Amen? As I said to you, I've done this work for a long time. I will know what it's like to pack my suitcase when I leave a city and I'm leaving empty-handed. You know, I know what it's like that I've taken money. I came home once from Kenya with a big carrier bag of, of tea. They love, they grow tea in Kenya. Did you know that? And some of the best coffee, Blue Mountain coffee is what they grow there. Top-end coffee and tea. So I came home and I unpacked the tea and my wife said to me, you better start a tea shop so we can recover our money. My honorarium was tea, tea leaves. You understand? Now, for the folks who gave it, it may have been the best that they could give. I'm not speaking against them. God bless them. May they never be without tea. The point I'm trying to make is this is high-risk work. You see? Unless you want to be like some speakers who tell you, I'm not leaving my home until the money is in my account. And they send you an invoice for how much they want. They tell you, I want to bath in Perrier water. And I want to eat caviar for breakfast. And I want this and I want that. And they tell you the whole list of things they want. By the time you've given them everything they want, you've got nothing. In fact, you have to bond your house to give them what they want. That's not how we work, because we understand we serve God and we serve His people. Amen? I've never sent the church an invoice, sorry, once. I was asked for it by a church in Cape Town for an invoice before I ministered there. I simply honored what they asked me to do. But I don't do it of my own, because this is high-risk work. You may get nothing, or you may get everything. You may get something in between. In the end, God is my source, and he's the one who provides for our needs. 
Now let me answer another question. How are elders appointed? Because again, when you look at the Scripture, there's no particular formula, no particular pattern that is followed in this. For example, when Paul writes to Titus in chapter 1, verse 5, it's recorded. He says, for this cause I left you in Crete. Crete is an island just off the mainland of, of Greece. I left you at Crete. That thou should set in order the things that are wanting. Set in order the things that are wanting. Now he explains. And ordain elders in every city I had appointed thee. Now, Titus is an apostle, but he was in relationship and in submission to Paul. And Paul sends him. He says he didn't send him. He left him there. When he departed from Crete, he left Titus there. Now he writes him a letter to tell him why he left him there. Said, I left you there to set things in order, which means there were some things in the churches, the new churches, that was out of order. And secondly, once you've set them in order, in order for them to stay in order, you have to appoint elders okay. in those congregations so that the pattern, the divine order of God may be established. In some translations it says that you may appoint elders for me. That's a controversial point. What is Paul saying? If that translation is accurate, Paul is saying the elders serving the church are actually serving me in serving the churches. Let me explain that. The work of an elder is not to introduce his own doctrine in a congregation. The word of an elder is to be a guardian of the doctrine that the apostle has established in the house. Indirectly then, an elder serves an apostle by guarding the apostle's doctrine in the house. So when Paul says to Titus, appoint for me elders, he's saying appoint for me guardians of my doctrine that I've established in that house. Some other day, maybe in the future, I can teach you about the relationship between elders and apostles. Because there's a unique relationship in that. If the relationship is not good, the doctrine of the apostle will be suffocated in a congregation. Because when the apostle is not there, the elders will do just whatever pops into their heads. So first thing then, the work then in this passage, it's clear that... It's an apostolic assignment to appoint elders. At least in its embryonic stage, when a new church is planted, it's the function, the responsibility of an apostle or apostles to appoint elders. Once these elders are functioning, they have the responsibility to discern who else is coming up in the congregation that meets these qualifications that can fulfill this function and this role. So in the initiating phase, it's an apostolic assignment. Secondarily, as the congregation grows, it's this body of elders that have the responsibility to see how and who to add to that body others that grows up in the congregation that have the grace to function in that capacity. It's not just a human assignment. I want that to be clear. 
because in Acts 20, 28, when Paul speaks with the elders of Ephesus that he met at Miletus, he said to them, God for yourselves and for the flock amongst which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now he brings a different dimension. He tells Titus to appoint elders, but he says it's the Holy Spirit who has appointed you to the task. In other words, the work of an apostle is to discern what the Holy Spirit is doing in the congregation and who is he working with to bring to that place. Because it's, if Jesus says, I will build my church, then it's his responsibility to build individuals through his word to come to a certain level of maturity and functionality to fulfill the assignments that he wants to have fulfilled. So firstly then, it's a work of the Spirit in a person's life. Then the person must have a willingness to yield himself to what God is doing. And of course, those that have an ear to see and an eye, an ear to hear and an eye to see will discern these individuals and bring them into the rightful relationship with the church. First Corinthians 16 has another interesting reference that I want to bring here. Verse 15 onwards. Now I urge you, brethren, that you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia. This is the place, Achaia, the first fruits, the first people to believe. And that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints. Verse 16, that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work of and labors. Now he's bringing a different dimension. He's mentioning individuals by name, and then he says that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints, that you also should be in subjection to such individuals and to everyone who helps in the work and in labors. And I rejoice over the coming of Stephanas and Fortunatus and Achaeus because they have supplied what was lacking on my part for they have refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. In other words, recognize those that labor amongst you. Even though the person is not in an office, has not been given a designated function, but they have grace, they have capacity, they have willingness, they have healedness, they've given themselves to the Lord and to the people to serve in that way, recognize such individuals. In other words, I'll give you an example. Abraham was a father long before he had children. How was that possible? When Lot's nephew was carried off with all of his possessions and you know, his family and everybody else, Abraham pursued those individuals who carried Lot and his possessions off and retrieved it and brought it back. You see, that's what a father would do. A father would risk his life for someone else, for his children, his offspring, for his household, to ensure their well-being. That's the characteristic of a father. 
You see, he didn't have children, but he had fathering in his heart. In other words, this is the point I'm trying to make. A person should have the capacity of serving God in eldering, in deaconing, before they are recognized in that place. Because they have a relationship with God. They have the spirit. They have the word. They have character. They have dignity. They function in God so that they can demonstrate who they are in God. So in the passages I've just read, the congregation is simply told to recognize these people. You will know those who are elders because they will already meet the qualifications. They already have the character, the dignity, the intuition, the discernment, the capacity, the relationship with God, with others. They already have within them what it takes to do the work. That's why it says recognize. This may sound mystical. See, there's not an exact process. Much easier if we're given three steps to heaven, isn't it? Seven steps to appoint an elder. You see, the building of the house of God is a work of the Spirit and the Word. It's in reliance upon the Lord and the guidance of the Spirit. So God wants us to do things in dependence on Him, not simply tick seven blocks. So the silence of Scripture is always instructive because it wants us to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts. Lean not to our own understanding. In all our ways acknowledge him that he may direct our paths in what we need to do. So as I understand it, this recognition is that of the church at large. When I appoint leaders, you know, when you officiate at a wedding, there's that awkward moment when you have to ask the congregation, is there any person present that have an impediment that hinders these two people from being lawfully married. And then you have that 30 seconds that feels like 30 minutes. You wait, you wait, you look over the audience, and then everybody has a sigh of relief, then you go on. It's the same with the appointment of leaders in the church. Because the appointment of leaders is a marriage taking place between the people and the leader. If the congregation doesn't want to marry the leader, there's a problem. If the congregation says, I have lawful impediments why this person should not lead me or cannot lead me. You can pour a whole jug of oil on the person's head. It's not going to make them accepted to other people. Because it's a marriage ceremony. The marriage is between the people and the leader. If the people do not accept the leader, there's going to be strife and struggle in the person fulfilling their task. Amen? That's why I asked the congregation, is there any person here with a lawful impediment why this person cannot be a deacon? Speak now, forever hold your peace. Then I wait. 
If nobody speaks, it says, now retain that position for the rest of your life. You've had opportunity to speak. Now receive the person because this is what they've assigned to do. The same with any other function. Even when I ordain an apostle, I do the same thing because it's important for people to speak. They may have knowledge that you don't have that will surface at that time. You know? Let's to remind you is what I said last week before I conclude. With regards to deacons, you would find that there is no job description for a deacon in the Bible. And the reason there is no job description is because the job description of a deacon is to do whatever the elders ask them to do. It can be practical or it can be spiritual. It's not just, you see, traditionally we believe deacons are responsible to make sure the place is clean and everything is done. There's the practical part of it. But you can also ask a deacon to fulfill a spiritual role. There's room, Stephanus, go out, preach. Different people in the, that were deacons were given assignments that were not practical things. They were spiritual things. In other words, things that the elders feel this will hinder me in fulfilling my task towards the congregation and God. You can delegate such a task to someone else to fulfill. So that that time is freed up to fulfill the assignment. Alrighty. In conclusion then, firstly, Paul commends those who desire the office of an overseer. In 1 Timothy 3.1, it is a trustworthy statement, if any man aspires the office of overseer, some translation says bishop, it is a fine work he desires to do. So, the scriptures tell me that I should desire to do the work of God. I must have a hunger to do something practical for God and for his kingdom. You see, when God visits your life, he assesses your heart. What's in your heart? Desire is a good thing in that we bring that before God. Desire is different than ambition, even though it's necessary to, be, to have ambition. It's better to steer someone with ambition than to be an ambitionless spineless person. Have ambition. You can steer someone with ambition. Someone without ambition is like a jellyfish. So the Bible encourages us to desire to do things in the house of God. Secondly, it tells me that these qualifications that Paul have listed here are qualities that every believer should aspire to. Everyone in the house of God should aspire these qualifications and qualities. But in order to function as elders and deacons, I must already have them operating within me. So it's not just for this segment in the body. It's for everybody. All of us should aspire these things. But these are qualifications that we need to have operating within us in order to come into 
this place of functioning. In the final analysis, it's Holy Spirit who helps me to build these qualities within my life. It's His work in me. He who has begun a good work in me is able to complete that work and present me faultless before His throne of grace and mercy. My prayer is today that God must make us, should make us the kind of man and woman with these qualities. God would help me, God would help you to be the person with this kind of qualities. Secondly, that God would never require anything of us that he doesn't give us to do. Every requirement that God have for me, for that he gives grace. He giveth more grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. Thirdly, God's provision is found in his word and in his spirit. So there is provision in God's word and in God's spirit for us to be what God calls us to be. And then may God bring these qualities into your life and into my life. So that the house of God may rise up and become built. Finally, my prayer is, and I hope that you pray with me, that God would raise up leaders, elders and deacons who meet the requirements of his word. That God would raise up these leaders, elders and deacons that meets the requirements of his word. You see, in my personal experience, when people are raised up into any type of leadership for which they do not meet the requirements, it's very difficult to fix them later. It's almost impossible to fix them later. Once you slap a title on somebody, that title changes them completely. They begin to function differently. They even walk differently. It's essential that we measure people by God's qualities and not by our own standards. And so, because we know what it is God is looking for, we should aspire to answer these prayers. We should pray, kingdom of God, come, will of God be done in my life. Let me meet God's expectations. Let me answer God's prayer. Let me become the answer of God's prayer for my city, for my nation, for my region. You have greatness locked up inside of you. Let it out. You have treasure in an earthen vessel. Let that treasure come forth. Whole earth is in travail waiting for us to manifest the sons of God. And I want to encourage you because my desire is to see a house built here that meets the specifications of God and that can really have an influence over the spirit climate, spiritual climate of the city. In order for us to do that, we have to build right. 
We have to do what God requires of us. It may be a long, tedious task, but whatever is necessary, if we do that, fulfill, God will fill up all the blanks by His grace. And this thing can arise and become strong and become visible. I don't want us just to be a nice suburban church. My desire is for us to affect chains societally and to affect chains in the nations. In order to do that, we have to be strong. We have to be vigilant. We have to give ourselves completely to the purpose and the plan of God. If we do so, God will be able to use us. The Bible says God is not a man. God doesn't look at the exterior. He looks at the heart. He told Samuel that when he sent him to Jesse's home to anoint the king. All of Jesse's sons paraded in front of Samuel, and the Spirit of God would not select any of them. Samuel said to Jesse, is there not another? He says, yeah, he's out there in the field taking care of the flock. He says, bring him. As soon as David walks in through the door, the Spirit of God says to Samuel, pour the oil. This is the one. For man does, God does not look on the exterior of man, but he looks at the heart. That's where God looks at the heart. We may look at the exterior and not see what we want to see, but God looks at the heart and then responds to that. David was just a boy at that time. Maybe, I don't know, 17, 18 maybe. For the next 12 years, he would fight for survival before he would reach the throne. All of that was preparation. I wouldn't want my preparation to be different than what I've suffered and what I've endured in life because it's prepared me for what I'm doing today. I have prophecies over my life that God would put me before presidents and kings. When I stand in, in a parliament building with the speaker of a house, there's no intimidation, there's no fear. There's no trepidation of this person having this high-ranking office in this nation. To me, it's just a person. Because God has built within me capacity, character, dignity, that I can stand before someone like that and not have any intimidation within me. When I stand before wealthy people that have excessive wealth, it doesn't intimidate me doesn't bother me. It's just money. It doesn't affect my dignity or who I am as a person. Because God has built within me dignity, character, that I can stand in that kind of environment. God has to move. You see, whatever God calls you to do, the process of the making is necessary that we have to go through. I want to encourage you not to take shortcuts. 
Because the soul often look for shortcuts. But yield yourself to the Lord and give yourself to the process so that God can cause you to become a tall tree in his house. To affect change in many people's lives and in many places. Consider this your training ground, your preparation. Please don't consider to retire here. Consider the place of preparation for your life. So that from here, God chooses to, he may send you somewhere to do something for him and his kingdom. Don't send yourself. Then you just went. Wait to be sent. So that you can do what God has called you to do. But in the meantime, use this time to be prepared, to be equipped, to be strengthened, to be envisioned concerning God's purposes for your life and for his kingdom. Amen? Let's pray.